But you, do you guys remember, Don said he remembers things from being a teenager. I'm going to take you way back then. Do you remember watching Mutual of Omaha's Wild Kingdom with Marlon Perkins and Jim, right? And, and how they would always have these great scenes of, of adventure into these dangerous and, and remote places like the Florida Everglades and, and the Amazon rainforest and, and the wilds of Africa. And, and, then, and then from the safety of his studio set, how Perkins would, would say stuff like, like now let's watch Jim wrestle this giant anaconda. <laughs> and so they cut to a scene of Jim, and then he'd say with a voiceover, and you know, friends, when your family wrestles with danger, you can always count on Mutual of Omaha insurance. <laughs> that, now, for some reason, that still, that still cracks me up. <clears throat> but, but, but it's the same idea of a lot of advice that we get out there from so-called experts, uh, so-called teachers and experts about spiritual Warfare and the things that we find ourselves wrestling with. Uh, they talk a good talk, but just like good old Marlon, when it's you who's in the thick of things, they're not really much help from a distance, right? And so what I want us to do today is uh, get some advice from a man who was no stranger to wrestling with all kinds of dangers, uh, whether they were physical or, or spiritual. Uh, dangers actually so numerous and so vicious that he said he felt like a pack of lions were surrounding him. Uh, and that advice comes this week uh, from the inspired pen of King David in the form of Psalm 57. <clears throat> Excuse me. So if you're following along in your Bible, as I hope you are, we're going to read Psalm 57. That's superscribed to the choir master according to Do Not Destroy, a miktam of David when he fled from Saul in the cave. And he writes, Be merciful to me, O God, be merciful to me. For in you my soul takes refuge. In the shadow of your wings I will take refuge till the storms of destruction pass by. I cry out to God most high, to God who fulfills his purpose for me. He will send from heaven and save me. He will put to shame those who trample on me. Selah. God will send out his steadfast love and his faithfulness. My soul is in the midst of lions. I lie down amid fiery beasts. The children of man whose sharp teeth are spears and arrows, whose tongues are sharp swords. And be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. They set a net for my steps. My soul was bowed down. They dug a pit in my way, but they've fallen into it themselves. Selah. My heart is steadfast, O God. My heart is steadfast. I will sing and make melody. Awake, my glory. Awake, O harp and lyre. I will awaken the dawn. I will give thanks to you, O Lord, among the peoples. I will sing praises to you among the nations. For your steadfast love is great to the heavens and your faithfulness to the clouds. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. It's the word of the Lord. So what you've just heard is a psalm from David inspired by him when he found himself running for his life from King Saul and not just from the person of the king but potentially from the evil spirit that had indwelled him because if you remember we're told in 1 Samuel 16, 14 that the spirit of the Lord had departed from Saul and an evil spirit from the Lord tormented him. Uh, and you didn't mishear me there. The Bible actually says this evil spirit was from the Lord. Meaning that in God's sovereign will, that it was allowed by God to harass Saul 
And I think that's kind of an important starting point uh, to remember as we consider the influence of spiritual evil in the world is that any power that the devil or his minions would exercise is always subject to God's will and to his sovereign decrees. Right? There's no free agents out there right, running around. Uh, or maybe in the words of the great reformer Martin Luther who, uh, who frequently wrote of his own spiritual wrestling said to always remember that the devil is still God's devil because ultimately all created things are under God's control. And so in God's uh, case with Saul, with uh, punishing him, this evil spirit was part of God's judgment on Saul for his flagrant act of disobedience. And, and I think it's likely that Satan and his demons and devils had always wanted to attack Saul anyway. So, you know, when God removes his presence from the king, he's simply giving them permission to do it. He's drawing back his protecting hand, and he's allowing that evil spirit to torment him. And at the same time, though, the very same time that same evil spirit was forced to serve God's ultimate plan to bring King David into Saul's life. If you've been reading along with any of this in uh, 1 Samuel, this account is recorded immediately following David being anointed as king of Israel. And 1 Samuel 16 reveals kind of the initial steps of this journey, uh, that when the king's servant saw that this spirit was tormenting Saul and what he was enduring, they said, see, an evil spirit from God is tormenting you. Let our Lord command his servants here to search for someone who can play the liar. He will play when the evil spirit from God comes on you and you'll feel better. So one of the king's servants referred David to Saul and described him as a great harp player, among other things. And Saul found him to be a comfort. And then we're told David came to Saul and entered his service. Saul liked him very much, and David became one of his armor bearers. And so what I think is interesting is that behind the scenes, visible only in the spiritual realm, spiritual forces were at work on one hand to punish God's enemy, King Saul, and on the other hand to accomplish his plan in bringing King David right into the seat of power, into the place of government in the kingdom. Uh, and I think at least for my part in thinking about this, uh, the best way that I could wrap my mind around it was a, a quote by Dr. Erwin Lutzer, who I'm sure that you guys are all familiar with. Uh, he says, Satan always loses even when he wins. Right? Satan always loses even when he wins. So in other words, no matter what the enemy may throw at us, God can and, and will and ultimately does always turn it around, just like we read in Romans 8.28. I bet a lot of you guys even know that verse by heart, which tells us, For those who love God, all things work together for good to those who are called according to what? His purpose, right? That doesn't tell us that all things are good, but that everything, even painful things, can be used for our personal good and for God's ultimate glory. Uh, and, and so that's why David started out our psalm today not focusing on his enemies, but on God, and so he prayed, be merciful to me, O God, be merciful to me. For in you my soul takes refuge. In the shadow of your wings I will take refuge till the storms of destruction pass by. And so David starts out today begging for mercy, but not from King Saul. David knew that God was over this whole affair, and David knew that uh, no troubles are larger than God, and so he pictures himself under the 
the shadow, the, the protection, the shield of what David calls metaphorically God's wings. But if you notice, those wings don't take him away from the storm of life, does it? Uh, or from the arena of evil forces, but it protected him until, as that old hymn goes, till the storm passes by. Right? I know we, we probably all know the chorus to that song. We haven't sung it in a while. But if you're not familiar with it, I think the second verse is really apt here. The one that says, many times Satan whispers, there's no need to try. For there's no end of sorrow, no hope by and by. But I know thou art with me, and tomorrow I'll rise. Rise where storms never darken the skies. Till the storm passes over, till the thunder sounds no more. Till the clouds roll away forever from the sky. Hold me fast, let me stand. In the hollow of thy hand, keep me safe till the storm passes by. And so in that same vein, David actually prays today, I cry out to God most high, to God who fulfills his purpose for me. He'll send from heaven and save me. Because if you remember, the spiritual world may be filled with what the Bible calls satanic forces in high places, but the atmosphere around us is also doubly filled with God's holy angels. Just like we're told in Hebrews 1.14, that says of them, are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? And so in his commentary on this, the 19th century American theologian Albert Barnes wrote, of this doctrine of angels, there is nothing absurd it's no more improbable that angels should be employed to aid man than that one man should help another. So why may not the angels be employed in his service? And I kind of like that. And then in his kind of thorough study through the scriptures, this is what Barnes said that angels do in the spiritual realm. Number one, he says they feel a deep interest in mankind and especially in everything that relates to our redemption. That's why Luke 15.10 says there's joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner that repenteth. Uh, or when speaking of, of babies and children, we're told uh, that in heaven their angels do always behold the face of my Father in heaven. Uh, one of the second things Barnes said that angels do is they appear for the defense and the protection of the people of God. Like remember those two angels who hurried Lot away from Sodom uh, and, and rescued him from the impending destruction recorded in Genesis 19.1? Uh, or how about that angel that opened the prison door of the apostles and delivered them when they'd been locked up by the Jews in Acts chapter 5? Uh, or, or really similarly, the angel of the Lord that delivered Peter from prison when he was arrested by Herod. The third thing Barnes said angels do is they're sent to give strength and to help us to resist temptation. Remember, as with our Lord in the wilderness or in the Garden of Gethsemane when there appeared an angel from heaven strengthening him. Uh, and, and finally, and I thought this was really kind of a, appropriate for this week that we lost Becky, that they attend dying saints and conduct them to glory. Angels attend dying saints and conduct them to glory. Just as Jesus said to Lazarus that when he died, he was carried by angels to Abraham's bosom. And so as, as with all of those things, by faith, David could say of his heavenly protection, God will put to shame him who tramples on me. Selah. So David's saying, God's got my back in the physical realm and in the spiritual realm. And, and when he realizes that, 
Uh, it's almost like a, a thunderbolt to him. And suddenly he says, Selah. He's got this overwhelming sense of God's power rather than the power of his troubles. Uh, and I know you guys remember we've talked about that word Selah shows up 71 times in the Psalms. And if you remember, it's a Hebrew word that basically means stop and, and pause and listen and think about that uh, or, or consider it and, and meditate on what you've just read and then keep on considering it. If, or I guess I should say when, opposition comes around again. Because it's sure to do it, isn't it? Right? As one author said, you're either in a storm right now, or you're just coming out of one, or you're just about to go into one. That pretty much sums it up, doesn't it? And that's the position David was in because in his very next line, he says, my soul is in the midst of lions. I lay down amid fiery beasts, the children of men whose teeth are spears and arrows whose tongues are sharp swords. And David's letting us know here that there's a reality to the evil uh, that he's facing, the reality of evil in the men that opposed him. But it was equally as dangerous as the spiritual reality of the evil forces that encouraged them. Because, you know, the Bible is very clear about the spiritual existence of our enemy, the devil. Right, we're told he prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour He's described as the enemy of mankind, the, the father of lies, the accuser. In fact, that's what the name Satan means. It, it literally means the adversary, the accuser. And ever since he was cast out of heaven along with the angels that chose to rebel with him, Satan has made it his purpose to oppose God and to lead the people of earth into open rebellion as well. But you know what? He's not powerful enough to actually accomplish all of that. And, and so kind of like a frustrated terrorist... He strikes from the shadows. And one big way Satan does that is through separation and deception. Kind of, uh, in a lot of ways, like actual lions in the wild do when they're on the prowl. And I'll give you just a quick illustration that I found when I was thinking about this. So whether it's uh, uh, like Wild Kingdom or Animal Planet or National Geographic, I'm sure you guys have all seen footage uh, of lions hunting for their dinner, right? Well, there's this uh, a really cool video you should check out on a website called Newsflare. Uh, it's a group of folks that were on a photo safari, uh, and they actually caught this video in October of last year. It shows a small group of, of female lions, like six or, or seven, that found this one lone buffalo that had strayed from the herd, maybe like a hundred yards or so, and they go after this buffalo who, despite being four to maybe five times the size of a lion, falls to their attack. And so you have to ask yourself, how do, how do just a few little female lion bring down this giant buffalo? Well, they do it with separation and deception. So first one grabs one heel of one back leg of the buffalo. And then another one grabs the other back leg. And then they hang on until they slow it down and separate it from the rest. Well, by then, one lion jumps on its back and another one grabs it by the stomach. And you can visualize probably what happens next, right? It turns into lunch. But here's the point. There were maybe a hundred other buffalo, if not more, all standing around and watching this go down. And I don't know if buffalo can think or not, but if, if buffalo could think, I bet you they're thinking, boy, am I glad that's not me. But imagine instead if the herd had decided, hey, 
we're not going to let those lions get away with this. And together they thundered in the direction of that pack of lions with their horns down and locked on target. That little pack of lions wouldn't stand a chance. They'd have to run for the hills. And here's the lesson. You see, the first thing that Satan does is strategically separate someone from the herd, right, from the church, for, for whatever reason. For whatever reason, people stop coming. But that's when he intensifies his attack. And when we hear of someone going through spiritual struggles or difficulties that another person is, is facing, it's really easy for us uh, to say, at least if it's only to ourselves, boy, am I glad that's not happening to me, right? It's easy to fall into that. But what we have to do instead as a congregation is to hang together. We, we've got to close in. We've got to close ranks and say, we're not going to allow that person to slip through the cracks. And that's something all of us can do. We can, we can reach out and we can encourage and we can uplift each other. And especially we can do that when it comes to bringing folks to the Lord's house, to inviting visitors to worship and encouraging members to attend public worship and, and Christian fellowship. Because you see... Each Sunday when we get ready and go to church and as we, we gather and praise God together as believers uh, and as you hear the gospel of Christ proclaimed and as we break the bread and drink of the cup of the Lord's Supper, you're not merely attending church. You are acting out the grand redemption narrative of the gospel. We're proclaiming a message to Satan and his demons that Jesus Christ, by his perfect life, and death and resurrection has purchased for himself a people and that you evil demons have no authority over those that belong to him. And so in that sense, church attendance is spiritual warfare because when you become a member of a church, you're not just choosing to uh, have a place to grow spiritually or a place to serve. You're declaring to the prince of the power of the air that we belong to the prince of peace. You're declaring to a demon-haunted world that you've been bought, uh, as Dawn sang so beautifully, by the precious blood of Christ, and that when we gather as a body of Christ, we're reminding the ruler of this world that one day, one day, the one true king is going to return for his church and that the devil is a defeated foe. And that's why David could confidently say of those forces arrayed against him, they set a net for my steps, my soul was bowed down, they dug a pit in my way, but they've fallen into it themselves. Think about that. It's just the same as with all of those people the devil tried to use to destroy God's plan of salvation. If you remember, we talked about uh, back in Psalm 55 how Satan entered Judas after he left Jesus and the disciples sitting around that sacred meal of the Last Supper to finish that diabolical plan that he had to deceive our Lord and betray him with a kiss. But, you know, he wasn't the only human being that the devil sought to exploit for his purposes. Remember what Simon Peter said in Acts 2 uh, when he said to all the people assembled, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. As you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. And who is he talking about? Well, go, go back in your mind and picture the scene. Picture here's, here's Caiaphas, the high priest, and all of his crowd, and, and Pilate, and, and Herod, and all theirs. They're kind of sitting around now after the crucifixion really smugly in this, 
grave and dignified self-congratulation over Jesus' death and demonically deceiving themselves that they've done a really great religious and civic duty by disposing once and for all of a man they considered a dangerous troublemaker. And so in their minds, with him now safely dead, they can concentrate once more on the really serious matters that they had dedicated their lives to, which was lining their pockets with money and figuring out how to stay in power. But behind their back, in the world of the unseen, in the spiritual world, without them having the slightest inkling of what was going on, their very action and participation in the death of our Lord had a big hand in bringing about what they feared the most, and that was the triumph of Jesus Christ. That was the victory that brought our salvation and that brings joy to our hearts, just like it did for David, who said, My heart is steadfast, O God. My heart is steadfast, and I will sing and make melody. Awake, my glory, awake harp and lyre, and I'll awaken the dawn. And, and as I was thinking through this, I thought that's another great uh, precept for us in spiritual battles in this world. Uh, and another weapon that we have in that arsenal is singing sacred music. Or, or as Colossians 3.16 says, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, seeking psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thanksgiving in your hearts to God. Because, uh, you know, along with recovering the word of God for the common people, everyday people like you and me, Martin Luther and the reformers wanted to recover the sacred music of the church, not just have it sung by uh, the professional clergy. Uh, he particularly wanted to restore congregational singing, both as a way to glorify God and as a way to defeat the works of the devil. Uh, in fact, uh, Luther wrote of this, he said, the devil hates music because he cannot stand gaiety. He said, Satan can smirk, but he cannot laugh. He can sneer, but he cannot sing. And because Luther believed so much in this spiritual power of song that the great reformer spent a lot of time compiling a hymn book for the use in the church, a book that uh, one writer remarked on saying, Luther translated the Bible into German so God could speak directly to the people, and he provided them the hymnal so the people could answer God in song. I like that thought. And that's part of the reason I wanted us to take this long extended look through the book of Psalms and, and not just preach on them, but sing, uh, to sing them like we've been doing. Because as one author said, the Psalms have always been the hymn book of the church under persecution, whether persecution physical or spiritual. Because singing the Psalms intertwines text and tune. And he says, when you sing together in worship with your brothers and sisters in Christ, many voices, many words of praise we experience together a taste of the victory to come. And I would add to that, uh, that even includes hymns and anthems. I love that song that, that Dawn sang this morning. Uh, anything that we sing together in worship. <clears throat> Ralph Martin in his book, Worship in the Early Church, wrote, the Christian church was born in song, and he says, we're a singing people. And there's a reason for that. He says the reality of God and Christ and creation and salvation and heaven and hell are simply too great just to speak about. We've also got to sing about it. And so by doing that, uh, by singing, even if you're, you're like me and you can't sing, uh, you can be sure that when you're singing sacred music, you're on the winning side of any spiritual battle and, and that you're, if you'll pardon the pun, you're in tune 
with the Lord. Because our singing lets people know the truth about our God. That's why David continued that line of thinking in verse 9, and he said, I will give thanks to you, O Lord, among the peoples. I'll sing praises to you among the nations. And so why did David say he would sing for people and nations? Well, it's because they all need to know about the love and the mercy and the grace and the power of God. And that work, that work of evangelism is another way that as a church and as individual believers, we can carry out the Great Commission and at the same time be in spiritual warfare to confound the plans of the devil. And so David closes today's psalm by saying, For your steadfast love is great to the heavens, your faithfulness to the clouds. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth because... You know, no matter what the world or the flesh or the devil throws our way, our God will be exalted. Right? We've read the end of the book, and God wins. His kingdom prevails. And in that future day, when Satan makes his final roar, the last lion that we're going to see standing is not the one that's hunted and, and haunted and harassed the people of God in every age. Uh, it's not going to be the one that accuses us before the throne of heaven, but it's going to be the holy one the Lion of Judah, our Lord Jesus Christ, who even now is building his kingdom. And brothers and sisters, all the gates of hell can't prevail against it. Amen.